The text for the sermon this afternoon is Hebrews 2, the verses 1 through 4. Let's, let's read those verses once again. So Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Thus far, our text. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, our text of this afternoon is a call to attention. It's like a teacher in a classroom. The teacher's been teaching important things, but, but now she stops and she steps back and she says, okay, now pay close attention here. You, you need to hear this. If, if you miss this, you're not going to know what you need to do. Or she may notice that some of the class is not paying attention and she'll say, are you, are you hearing what I'm saying? You really need to get this. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. He's shifting his language to, to draw attention to what he's saying. In chapter 1, he's been talking about the greatness of the Son. How God has ultimately and finally spoken in His Son. He spoke throughout the Old Testament, but now He has spoken finally, ultimately in His Son. In the last days, that's the days we're in right now. But now he, he brings all that he's been saying about the Son, he brings it all together. And he shifts, he, he, he shifts from looking at the speaker, from looking at the Son, to looking at what the speaker has said and what that means for their lives. He's addressing a real and present danger that, that is there for the readers. Doctrine and life are, are brought together here in our text in a way that applies directly to their situation. And the danger that the writer of Hebrews is addressing is the danger of drifting away. And what he does is he uses nautical shipping terminology. There's two words that he uses there. The words that are translated in our text as, as hold fast and then drift away. Those are two words that were used in shipping. The, the word that is translated as hold fast or pay close attention, that, that is a word that was connected to, to something relating to anchoring or mooring. So you would throw an anchor down and it would hold you fast. Or you would attach yourself to a dock or a pier. It would hold you fast. And so that's the word he uses there when he says we must pay more closely more we must pay more careful attention. And then he has the warning don't drift away. And again, another word from the the shipping world. 
The, the illustration that he's using there is that of a boat that is, is not connected to its moorings and it, and it simply drifts away, it floats away. You know, children, you may have this experience, probably seems like a distant experience at this point, but in the summer, when the water wasn't frozen, you would be on a rubber dinghy, you'd be on a, on a, on a raft, and you would go out from where your parents were, you would lay in the raft, you might close your eyes for a bit, and you would look up, and your parents would be way over there, and you would have drifted far away. You need to walk back to where your folks are. But that's the illustration that the writer of Hebrews is using here. He's saying, pay attention, hold fast, or you'll, you'll drift away. And shipping, that was a, that was a big deal. If you, if you drifted away in a ship, you could be dashed on the rocks. And that theme of, of holding fast is something that the writer of Hebrews emphasizes again and again throughout the letter. We see it in chapter 3, verse 6. We see it in chapter 10, 23. He talks about hold fast your confession. Hold unswervingly. It's a recurring and urgent call that he makes to the church. Hold fast. Don't drift away from the salvation that you have in Christ. And that continues to be an urgent call that comes out to the church today. It's probably one of the greatest dangers that faces the church, that faces Christians, the danger of drifting away. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, And as a matter of fact, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? That is so true. When you look around you when, you, when you look at friends, family members who have left the faith, is it often because they reasoned it out or is it simply because they drifted away? They lost their connection to the gospel. They might still believe in God. They might still believe in Jesus Christ, but they simply drifted away. They neglected it. They shipwrecked their lives. The message of the gospel became something that did not fill them with awe. And it didn't captivate them. You know, children, you may be surprised to know that your parents' greatest fear for you is that you will drift away. A parents' greatest desire for their children is that they stay close to their Savior, that they grow up to know Him and to love Him. It's not just something that parents have. It's an ongoing battle that everyone has. It's a fear that, that we have for our own lives. And it's something that we can feel creeping into our own lives. We feel it tugging at us. That, that temptation to simply let the message drift away from us. To drift away from what we have in Christ. Other things look so inviting... We are so tied up with other things. We drift away. 
So in this text, this is, this is not a text where we can wag our heads at, at others saying, yes, this message is for them. Don't drift away. No, this is a message that speaks to all of us. In fact, it's interesting that the writer of Hebrews, when he shifts his language, he includes himself in the warning. He says, we must pay more careful attention. Now, this is a message that speaks to all of us. And so this afternoon, we're going to look at the danger of drifting away. And we're going to see three things. We're going to see what causes drifting away, what happens when we drift away. And we're going to see finally the answer. What stops drifting away? So in the first place, what causes drifting away? Now as we look at our text, one of the things that we need to see here is that the image being used by the writer is that of moving water. He's not saying that, that something's going to happen, that, that water is going to suddenly come on us. No, he's saying that is your setting. That is where you are. You are in moving water. That's where you are. So if you don't beware, your setting will simply carry you away. What he's saying to his, his readers, to that first audience of this letter, the Hebrews, he's saying to them that they had lost something that they had once had. They had let go of their moorings. Something had threatened their commitment to the faith. As we read through the letter of Hebrews, it, it appears that they were being drawn back into some form of Judaism. That was an ongoing threat for the New Testament church. Many Jews rejected Christ, but many of the first Christians were still Jews. And they wrestled with, now how does the Old Testament relate to Christ? How do the Old Testament regulations, the Old Testament ways of doing this, how do they factor into what we have in Christ. And so it looks like what is happening here with the, with the Hebrews is that they are being drawn back away from the gospel to some form of Judaism. It was a pressure that they had on them that was pulling them away. That was their setting. And we share in that, in a way. We feel pressure on us as well to drift away. There's pressure on us to, to connect to things and see them as more important to us than the gospel. We allow other things to define us first before our relationship to Christ. We may say, yes, we're a Christian, but, but first I'm this, I'm my occupation or I'm my nationality. I'm my gender. We take our Christianity down off the shelf every once in a while, and we put that cloak on, and it defines us for a time, and then we take it off and we put it back. There's pressure on us. You know, we can think of the parable of the sower, Matthew 13. The sower sows the seed. Satan snatches away the seed that falls on the path. The other seed doesn't establish roots in the rocky ground. Other seed is, grows up in weeds. It gets choked by worldly cares. That's a reality that describes our life. 
In this sin-broken world, things pull on us, threaten the message of the gospel that has been planted in our hearts. And so in this sin-broken world, it is simply a matter of fact that if there is apathy, if there is indifference, if there is a lack of alertness, you will be washed away. You will drift away. That is simply what will happen. Kent Hughes, who has written a wonderful commentary on the book of Hebrews, has identified three causes for drifting away. Time, familiarity, and busyness. Time, familiarity, and busyness. I think in our Canadian Reformed community, that is something that speaks so powerfully to us. Many of us were born into the faith. We were, were born, it was a blessing. We were born into the family of believers. We were raised by Christian parents. It's something that's always been there. And even if we came to the faith later in life, it may have been a few years ago, it may have been 10 years ago, but somehow time does something to the vibrancy of our faith. What was new becomes familiar. What is familiar loses its luster. A number of years ago, I was speaking to a university student who was being challenged by another Christian about her faith. They were asking her, when did you ask Jesus into your life? She was repeatedly asked this question. When did Jesus come into your life? And she said, I don't know. He's just always been there. Now, there's beauty in that answer. Children, you have always had Jesus Christ. There are adults who weep because they did not know him as they grew up. You have known him all your life. That is a wonderful blessing. But there is a danger there. And it's a danger that we all feel as we grow that danger, that time and familiarity take the shine off of the wonder of who Christ is. We must continually reconnect to him, make him our own, be awed and amazed at the wonder of who he is and hold fast to him. Time and familiarity are things that will draw us away and cause us to drift away. And busyness is such, such a, a cause for drifting away. I think we especially see it with families. Family life is busy. Think of a mother, gets up at 6 in the morning, 6.30, gets things ready for her kids, gets them off to the bus stop, drives home, takes care of the home, has to go pick up the kids, has to bring them to practice. There's busyness there. It draws you away. You don't have time to reflect on who your Savior is. You're just caught up in the busyness of life. Or we can think of the businessman. He's on business trips, he's out of town, he's busy all day. Study societies are, 
are simply just not possible for him. He's too busy. When we allow that busyness to take over, we have allowed a cause for drifting away to enter into our lives. It's something we need to, to beware about, to be aware of. See your schedules. Look at how your lives are organized. And be sure to not let that busyness get in the way of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that we will abandon Jesus Christ because of these things. But what can happen is that we begin to starve our faith life. We're simply just existing. So be aware of those things that cause you to lose your grip on the gospel, that threaten your connection to Christ. Because what happens is when you lose your connection to Christ, when you begin to drift away, you open yourselves up to just judgment. Because that's what happens when we drift away. The writer of Hebrews says there, verse 2, For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Now, the message spoken by angels, what is that? Well, that is referring to the law that was given at Sinai. Now, in the Old Testament, we don't read too much about that. The only place we really see it is in Deuteronomy 33, 2, where Moses is singing his song and he refers to God with his holy ones. But we see it more clearly in the New Testament, Acts 7, 53, when Stephen is speaking, giving his sermon to the Jewish leaders. He speaks about the law that came through angels. Paul, in Galatians 3, 19, speaks about the angels mediating the law. So the writer of Hebrews here is referring to the law. And what, it appears, what appears to be the case here is that the original readers of Hebrews had a very high regard for angels. And that perhaps came from Judaism. We have evidence, for instance, the Essenes. That's the, the sect, the Jewish sect that existed around the time of Christ, before the time of Christ. You may have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those were from the Essenes. And in those writings, we see that they, they saw the angels as very exalted beings. And so it's likely that the first readers of the book of Hebrews were, were thinking that the law's greatness was connected to the fact that angels, these incredible beings, had mediated the law. God had spoken through them. Now the writer of Hebrews doesn't try to make the law less. That's something we need to see in our text. He doesn't try to say, well, the law is actually not that great. Angels aren't that great. Throughout chapter 1, he's been showing that the Son is indeed greater than angels. But he doesn't here try to make the law less than it is. Now, his point is to show how much greater the gospel is. The gospel that was spoken through his Son. He's saying, if that message was so great, how much greater will the message spoken through the Son of God, how much greater will that punishment be? 
And what he says there is, if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation in disobedience received its just punishment, and when he says that, when it received its just punishment, what he's saying is that disobedience in the Old Testament earned, the word used there for received is actually similar to the word for earned. It earned punishment. Disobedience, sin, deserves punishment. That is what it earns. That was true in the Old Testament. It is even more true in the New. So the message spoken through God, through His Son, will receive even greater punishment. The writer of Hebrews says in 10.31 that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. In the New Testament, there is indeed God's anger against sin. And so what happens when we drift away is just punishment for sin. You know, today it's very popular to, to talk away hell. It's not just something from today. When I was researching for this sermon, I had a commentary from the early 60s there. The commentator said, today people wish to talk away hell. It's something that's been with us. Today, the main prophets for this type of theology are, are people like Rob Bell. The idea there is that God is love. And it is impossible that the God who is love would actually ever put anybody in hell. Bell's book is called Love Wins. So his idea is love impels God. So that in the end, he will simply say, I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do. I will not do what I promised. Death will not come because of sin. But those who do that, they ignore passages like our text. They ignore the rest of Scripture that we see in the old and the new. That speaks about God as being just and merciful. Those who wish to talk away hell, to talk away the consequences of drifting away, they don't view God rightly, they don't view Christ rightly, they don't view man rightly, they don't view sin rightly. As one person has said it, this epistle, the epistle of Hebrews, leaves us in no doubt that those who are saved are saved from a sore and genuine peril. Christ's saving work is not a piece of emotional pageantry, rescuing men from nothing in particular. You see, when you take away the just judgment, the just punishment that sin earns, you make Christ's death on the cross simply some sort of object lesson for us. Nothing really was happening there on the cross. It was just a little show that God put on for us. But our text tells us that it's different. There is a just punishment for those who drift away. This warning in our text is for your benefit. Do not drift away. If you lose your connection 
to the gospel, if you fail to see the wonder of what Christ has done, if it is becoming distant for you, beware. God does not take it lightly when you think nothing of what he did in his son. Do not be found thinking that it is nothing. He did this to make you his children. No message has more of a claim on you than this. Nothing can define you more than this. The threat is real, the danger is real. Beware. Hold fast your confession. But now we come to that question, what stops drifting away? What's the answer to this? We all look at ourselves and we all see our weaknesses. We see our sins, we see our tendencies. Do we stop everything? Do we just put aside our other obligations and only focus on this? How can we do this? How can we survive if we do that? And in the midst of our sin and our weaknesses, we, we know what will happen. We'll, we may walk out of this worship service saying, yes, I'm going to commit myself to serving the Lord. But we know that Monday morning will come. And the warm fuzziness will have worn off and we'll be back to where we were on Saturday night. Time, familiarity, busyness, They've done their damage and they will continue to do their damage to us. So what do we do? What is the answer to drifting away? And the answer is given in the last part of our text. He says there beginning the second part of verse 3. He says, this salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. But what the writer of Hebrews is doing here in the, in the last part of our text is he's, he's turning our attention once again to the greatness of the gospel message. He confirms that so great a salvation that he references in verse 1. He confirms the greatness of that message by referring not to the content of the message, but to the way in which the message was received. Because that's where the problem was for the Hebrews. The way in which the message was received. The stumbling block for the Hebrews was that they thought that the message of the Old Testament, the law, that it was so great because it was mediated by angels. And they were saying the New Testament message, it was mediated by simple, sinful men, by preachers. How great could it be compared to that message? And so in his response, the writer of Hebrews reminds them that the message was spoken by God through the Lord. That's literally what it says there. It says, this salvation which was first announced by the Lord... When you translate that literally, it says it was first announced by God through the Lord. So what he's doing is he's repeating one verse two. That God has spoken in these last days by his son. 
God himself spoke through his son, the one who is so much greater than angels. So that's established first of all. That message was first proclaimed, announced by God himself through his son. But then what the writer of Hebrews does as he looks at how that message is passed on and he explains to them how the reliability and authority of the word still remain. He says there, it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Confirmed to us. That is legal language. The message was attested to. The apostles, the ones who heard him, they gave testimony. They confirmed it. They were witnesses of Christ. It's reliable. And it's interesting here, the writer of Hebrews puts himself in with the group of people who had heard it from the apostles. Incidentally, that is the reason why Calvin, for instance, rejected Paul's authorship of this letter. Some of you may, may know that in older days, they, they thought this letter was written by Paul. But Paul was very emphatic. He said that he saw firsthand that he was one who saw and received direct revelation from Christ on the road to Damascus. So this writer, the writer of the book of Hebrews, is part of the second generation of Christians, like Luke, for instance, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. What happened is that the first generation, the apostles, the witnesses, they gave testimony. They passed on the message of the Son to the next generation. But that next generation then preached the word, and it had the same authority. So the writer of Hebrews is confirming the apostolic authority of the message of the gospel. It remains when men sent by the church, the church that is based on the teachings of the apostles who spoke for Christ, when they speak, they speak the very words of God. In fact, one of the mottos of the Reformation was that preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Reformation reestablished the centrality of preaching and the authority of preaching in our lives. What God is doing in preaching. The answer to drifting away is to hear the message. It's to hear that message again and to appreciate its claim on your life, its authority. You hear that word when you read it. But you also hear it with authority when it is proclaimed to you off the pulpit. The worship services. That is where your moorings are reestablished. You know, the quickest way for you to drift away is to stop attending the worship services. The author of Hebrews addresses that chapter 10. We must stop, not, we must not stop coming together as some have been doing. The quickest way 
to drift away is to stop using the means of grace that God has given you in the proclamation of the word. When you, when you stop sitting under the preaching of the word, you effectively pull up your anchor and you let yourself be drifted, drift away. Every Sunday you come here, you sit under the proclamation and Christ pulls you back. He establishes your moorings through his word. You hear the message every Sunday again. Jesus Christ died and he bought you with his blood. You belong to him. Salvation is found in him and no one else. We often see the worship service as being about us bringing something to God. That is our, in many ways, our modern heresy. It's the spirit of our age. It was interesting, there was a ministerial a few months ago when Dr. DeVisser spoke about the worship service and what happens in the worship service. And he noted an increasing tendency, for instance, in prayer at the beginning of a worship service. An increasing tendency for ministers to say, please bless our worship. Now, that's not wrong that we ask that God bless our worship, our singing, our prayers. But what he found interesting is that in the older days it was, Lord, please be pleased to speak to us here. What has happened is that worship becomes about us coming together to do something for God. And we forget that the worship service is not about that. Your whole life, God has a claim on it. You live for him. Life is worship. But when you come here, yes, you bring praises to God. That is there. But you come here to hear God speak to you. You come here for God to do something to you, to change you. That happens every Sunday. That call comes from Christ through his servant, through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit calls you in this worship service. Faith is formed. Faith is strengthened here. The answer to drifting away is to hear the word, to use the means that God has given to have him work in you. So parents, how do you stop your children from drifting away? Now we can't have arrogance about this. Your children's salvation is not dependent on you. It is dependent on the Lord. But the Lord has given you a calling as parents. And what is the way in which God has directed you to raise your children so that they don't drift away? What is the means he has given you? We read it in Deuteronomy 6. It's to teach your children about God, about him. Deuteronomy 6, the verses 4 through 9. Those are powerful words. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you sit, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Train them up in the Lord. Teach them. Have the aroma of Christ fill your home. You know, the Jews took this text and they, they actually tie texts to their, to their forearms. They, they have little boxes on their foreheads with scriptures. That is not what Moses is saying here. No, all of life must be defined by your faith. That was how it was in the Old Testament. If that is what they did in the Old Testament, how much more should we be defined and have that aroma filling our homes in the new? But as you think about your children, parents, also think about yourself. The quickest way for your children to drift away is if you drift away. Make sure that you are holding fast first. You can think of the, the message that the flight attendant gives when you are preparing for takeoff. In the case of air pressure dropping, oxygen masks will fall. Parents of young children, be sure to put your mask on first before your child's. As parents, we, we cannot be obsessed with making sure our children are faithful when we are not holding fast. So the call comes to us as well. Hold fast. See what Christ has done. See the joy of new life in Christ. See the riches you have in him. And live that life with joy. Fasten yourself to the message of the gospel. When all the waves of this sin-broken world crash in on you, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to what you have heard and you will not drift away. Your Savior will hold you close. Amen. Let us now respond to the proclamation of the word by singing together hymn 13, the stanzas 1 through 5. Do you not know, have you not heard? Hymn 13, all five stanzas. Thank mm -hmm. you. 